This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings, this is J. Douglas Barker. Today on iUniverse, we'll be visiting with Army Vet, technical professional, and New York resident and author, Selrock Smith, to discuss his book, Are You Looking? A Guide to Navigating Gay Dating. Welcome, Selrock. Thank you. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Pretty good. It's a bit rainy here in New York City, but yeah, you know, New York is one of those cities where you can just absorb everything. You'll find something great about even the rain. Yes, <laughs> so I, I'm kind of happy. I, I love New York. New York's a great place to visit. I'm in the Southwest, but uh, definitely enjoy my visits there. Now, on your book cover, it says this about your book. In this guide, Selrock Smith, a fellow veteran of the dating war, shares his best advice perspective, and support. He discusses everything you need to know about taking optimistic and productive control of your dating life, no matter how or where you meet people. You'll learn some powerful tips and simple life lessons to take the confusion out of meeting new people and making a great first impression. And with these tools, you can learn how to avoid the world of heartache and headache. Does that kind of sum it up? That sums it up very, very well. And um, the wording is, is actually perfect. It's a perfect description of uh, a lot of what I'm discussing in the book and a lot of various topics, um, but it's also a very direct approach. Um, I'm not, you know, I didn't write War and Peace. <laughs> and so yes. it's one of those things where I want people to just, you know, have a, a quick read that is to the point. You know, I'm not adding a lot of stuff to it, so um, I'm very happy with that. Okay, how did you come to write this book? Oh, wow. Well, it's, it started um, about almost two years ago, actually, as, um, you know, a lot of my friends were becoming, out of a long-term relationship, becoming newly single. And I had been, you know, single for quite some time at that point. And, you know, they would talk, talk to me about their dates, who they met, how they met them, and I would share common mistakes. They were able to give me scenarios and I was already able to complete the scenario for them. And I'm like, okay, this is what's going to happen because of X, Y, and Z. And what will happen, what will happen, they were making the same mistake I made um, when I became single, uh, especially out of a long relationship. And what took place, it was just over and over again. These were friends of mine that didn't even know each other making the same common mistakes. And then uh, in discussions with other people, I found that, you know, a lot of these things were common. It was very repetitive. So kind of as a joke, <laughs> I said, I'm going to write everything down when you stop calling me. <laughs> and okay. that's kind of how it started. And next thing you know, I had an um, intro and an outline done, and I just started writing. All right, and what do you want the readers to take away from your work? I think the, the biggest thing I would like people to pick up is, you know, the stuff I wrote about in terms of self-evaluation, I think you know, uh, or self-reflecting, as I call it. And I think it's important to really understand who you are, where you currently are in life in your current situation, and 
where you're going, and what do you want. Once we understand these things within ourselves, then we can meet people and determine if the person we're dating or involved with is important, if, if that's something you really need in your life, if that's something that you want, or are you dating or with this person for the wrong reason. So I think a lot of times people are in relationships where you meet people and they're with them and it's not for the right reason. So that's, that's important to me. I want that to kind of stop. Yes. And uh, how long did it take you to write this book? Um, well, <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, it, it was more of a hobby. I still consider it somewhat of a hobby, but um, you know, working a full-time job at you know, other, you know, uh, ventures and whatnot, and this was uh, an approach that was very close to me. So I think total time in terms of uh, actual writing the manuscript, the editing process, and you know, getting the first draft out there, we um, combined in terms of days, I would say, about, oh my, I would say I put a good solid year, a good solid 10 to 12 months it took me to complete the whole process. Now, granted, over that's a 10 to 12 months that's, that spread it over a two-year period, um, and it actually took me really completed, you know, but, yeah, that's how long it took. Yes, and is this book similar to other books in the marketplace, or is yours kind of unique? You know, to be honest, I've read, long before I wrote this book, I read several books that, um, was related to the gay community, with dating, and some of the issues that I also discussed in this book. And I didn't quite feel that they elaborated enough, or they, they tiptoed around some of these topics that are considered, you know, very taboo that goes on in the gay community. But no one wants to talk about them. It's like a pink elephant in the room. So I feel like um, there was one, maybe one or two that really took on the some of the bad side of dating in the gay community and kind of hit it hard, but they didn't specifically reference um, some of them referencing some of the drug use, some of the, you know, a lot of the uh, sexual activity that takes place. They talked about it in another book, but it, it didn't translate over to someone that's dating or is trying to meet people. And, you know, how do you avoid that? How do you kind of, uh, you know, steer around it? So I think my book, and then another thing is this too, I find a lot of the authors that wrote books, um, about this, a similar, similar topic was more than 10 years ago. The last one that was published um, that I was able to find was from uh, 2003. So, you know, here we are 10 years later. So I think my, my perspective has a, is a fresher, more updated approach, and it's very direct, and, you know, I'm not a doctor or psychiatrist that has written stories based on my patients. I wrote this book from my observations and those of my friends, and, you know, I think that alone makes it very relatable. And even the readers that, you know, that have purchased it already and some of the feedback that I've gotten in the book, you know, they're like, wow, this is so true. I'm so happy you wrote this. And, you know, I, the feedback I'm getting is, is amazing. And But the feedback that I'm getting is from the community that I wrote it for, for from, you know, single gay men that, you know, are trying to meet people in, in, a, in a big city or anywhere for that matter. And... Uh, I'm just very happy with what I'm hearing. Well, it was that the most challenging part of writing the book, being being specific about uh, complex issues in the gay community. It was it was complicated because you know you're putting your your <laughs> in a way you're putting yourself in a situation where you're going to be you know criticized and you know I don't want to say necessarily attacked, but um, you know judged for you know saying certain things that you know people may not want to talk about. And but I thought that it was 
important to discuss these issues because they were true. And I genuinely believe that I told the truth about what actually takes place. And, you know, um, and this is something that necessarily mainstream may, may not be aware of. I think um, I, don't, I didn't want to give into the, the stereotypes of the gay community either by, you know, discussing large sexual numbers, you know, large numbers of uh, sexual partners and the drug use and partying. I didn't want to kind of get into that, but I wanted to, I wanted to make it clear that, you know, a lot of gay men are just regular guys that just don't happen to be gay. And that's really the core audience, the core group I'm targeting. Now, granted, um, the people that I'm finding that are, you know, my more average readers are women. A lot of women are surprisingly reading this book, and I'm getting a lot of feedback from women. So it's, 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 it's weird. Um, you know, I targeted one audience, and I'm getting feedback from another. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting thing. But I think uh, as far as complicated, yes, it has been very complicated to talk about, you know, dating and HIV. You know, no one has done that. I have yet to read a book that discusses that. And, you know, HIV, you know, here it's been since the 80s, 1980 was the first case. So we're looking at um, 30 years of a virus that has affected one community, you know, not, you know, it affects everyone, but it's been targeted towards one community for so long. And no one has specifically, that I'm aware of, discussed dating and HIV. And I, I did touch on that in this book as well. Right now, this this book, although it's it's targeted towards uh, gay dating, uh, does it have issues or or conversation that might be transferable to to anybody that's dating? It, it, it's completely transferable. I genuinely believe that anyone that is genuinely looking to meet someone and you know start something, start a new relationship, or I have tips in here that I think will help everyone. And ironically, like I said earlier, you know, the, the amount of women that are responding to me about the book, it's, it's crazy. And I, I love that women are picking it up and they're taking it and they say, you know what? Yes, I can totally relate to this topic. I can totally relate to, you know, whatever you said in this chapter. And what's happening, now granted, I, not every single thing, because some things are specifically targeted to gay men. But overall, yes, I believe anyone can take this book and, um, get something positive from it. And that's really what the biggest thing to me is sending a positive message out there to people. Super. Now, what is the, maybe the one tip that you would give to just as a general dating tip to anyone that's uh, trying to get into a relationship? What would you say to them? Oh, God. <laughs> There's so many places to start. Um, the, the reason that's kind of, it's kind of hard to answer that, given you know, a targeted one question um, a one one simple um, thing to, to look for, um, because as as complex as dating can be, I think there's a set number of things that, that can be evaluated. Um, but I think for me, the, it's it's all about the individual. So I can only talk for myself um, in regards to that. Um, for me, the biggest thing is respect. That's the biggest thing. Someone that you know respects your time, respects you know what you're trying to do. Um, you know they're listening to you, and you know you you're looking at what they do as an individual as well. They respect themselves. Are they doing things to make sure that they're a better um, individual? And you know you look at all these things across the board. But let's say you take that one topic, you take respect, and you apply it to other things. You watch this person. You kind of have to be very uh, mindful of you know what they say. Are they you know of their words are they honest and you know but it, for me it all brought down to respect and that's such an important thing and I think from respect other things can grow so that's something that I personally personally look for I don't have any specific you know to 
or anything of that nature. I look for uh, more moral qualities that are more important. So that that's important to me. But I feel like uh, an individual has to decide what do I want. Okay, what what specifically is important to me, and what are, where are my values with this, and then I can apply that to what I'm looking for. So that's what I would tell someone. So sincerity and respect are kind of a key ingredient to any dating situation, from what I'm hearing. I, I, I completely, I completely agree with that. That's exactly what I'm saying here. All right, and what what uh, what would you like readers who get your book and who read it, obviously, what would you want them to take away from uh, your your insight? You know what? I think from my many, 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 many mistakes, um, they, I, I would love them to take the wisdom that I've put into the book. And um, I genuinely believe that you can always learn from another man's mistakes. And I, I want people to take <clears throat> little things, you know, the little red flags that I discussed, things that I want people to pay attention to from the beginning of a relationship. A lot of times we meet people and we get so carried away with, oh, He's great. I love him. <laughs> you know, or you, mm-hmm. you, it, it's the newness of it. And I, I call it the honeymoon phase. We get into the honeymoon phase and we ignore a lot of like little red flags that are clearly evident in the beginning. And they don't manifest themselves until later. And what happens once the honeymoon phase is over, you start paying attention to these little issues, but the flags were always there. We, we just couldn't see them. We were blinded by this honeymoon phase. So a lot of times I think people can take away and save themselves a lot of heartache by just paying close attention um, and, and to little things in the beginning when you first meet someone. And a lot of times if you could take a red flag, you can multiply that flag by, what, three years. And that same issue was always there in the beginning, but we chose not to see it. And be, it's funny how you can rewind to a beginning of a relationship and remember details that, you should have paid attention to from day one. And that's the biggest, that's one of the biggest lessons I want people to take away from when they, after they finish the book. Uh, also, like I said earlier, uh, I want people to do a lot of self-reflecting and, you know, find out what's important to you, find out what you want. Because if you don't know what you want, how do you know if you've missed it? How do you know if that person already passed you by? You you won't know. But if you're just, oh, I'm just kind of want to have fun looking around, okay, that's great. But, you know, when you are ready to date and you meet someone seriously, you want to know exactly what's important to you. And, you know, and I, I talk about writing a lot of lists in the book. You know, I talk about people just spending time with themselves to figure these things out before you meet someone, before you jump into something, figure out what's important to you, what do you want, and that's that. Well, that's that's uh, good advice for anybody in dating world, whether it's gay it, or straight. It really is. It really is. If <laughs> you're a single person trying to figure things out and, but I feel like there's a confidence that comes with knowing with knowing who you are, and and that there's a self conviction there, and, and it's people can see it, and then the confidence stands out more than anything else. If you're in a public setting, where you're in a group, where there's you know a bar, wherever it is, where you know you have a lot of people are around, somebody that's confident, you can always spot them immediately. I don't care what they're wearing; they could be wearing anything, nothing. You would spot a confident person a mile away. So. But that, a lot of that confidence comes from internal. It comes from people, you know, knowing exactly who they are, where they're going, and what they want. And it's attractive. It's probably the most attractive trait that I can think of. And that's the key right there. That's the biggest key right there. People need to have that. If you don't have it, and, and you kind of need, you know, not even if you, not even not even if you're shy, um, it, you know, you, that confidence is 
any situation that um but it only comes from within. If no one can give it to you, you can't go and buy it. It's just, it comes from within. You've either got it or you haven't got it. Exactly. And I do talk about ways to kind of figure it out. What can you do? And there's so many, life is, you know, hard enough as it is. And I feel like there's so many areas that I feel we need to cover. I definitely talk about people. Um, again, I said, as I said earlier, I'm going to repeat, I'm going to keep repeating with it, self-evaluation. And I'm referencing, you know, whether it's from a health perspective, your education, whether it's, financial, whether it's, you know, mental, I talk about this evaluation from across the board. And if there's an area in life that, you know, it's lacking somewhere, work on that, you know, work on that first before you try to meet somebody. Work on that, you know, get that squared away because you don't want that to be a conflict when you do meet someone you're interested in and you want to move forward with them. You don't want any conflict from that can be changed that you can control. And I also talk about, you know, I want people to get advice from, you know, family members, doctors, I've even talked about people, you know, potentially going into therapy and, you know, using that as, you know, uh, an angle to kind of work through some uh, inner turmoil. Because uh, another thing that I see a lot of people do, we use relationships and dating as crutches um, for emotional support when no one can give you that. You have to have it within yourself. That's absolutely correct. Your self-esteem has to come from the inside. Exactly. Well, we've been visiting with Selrock Smith, author of the book, are You Looking? A Guide to Navigating Gay Dating. Sel Rock Smith, thank you for visiting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Take my, care. My pleasure. Where can listeners get a copy of your book? Wow, you can, it's, it's everywhere, actually, but it's definitely on Amazon.com. It's also on Barnes & Noble. I also have uh, my own website where I am uh, making the book available there. It's called AreYouLookingBook.com. It's available there. You can get the e-books and a uh, hard copy there. And that's it. You know, it's, I'm, I'm really excited about this project, and I'm looking forward to moving forward with it. Well, thank you, Sal Rock, and thanks for sharing your insight. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. 
Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central, on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The book is titled A Wing and a Prayer. The author of that novel has said this about it. The first concept was written in my formative years and lay languishing in the dark recesses of my mind for almost 30 years until I finally decided to get it out, dust it off, and see where the story would lead me. I hope you'll understand. I hope you'll enjoy reading about the journey as much as I enjoyed making it. And it says there's a second book of Gabriel, Belladonna, awaiting. So that's interesting. Now, this uh, novel takes place, starts in the year 40 A.D. Already has my attention. Uh, The author is Ernest Oglesby, and he's here to discuss his book, A Wing and a Prayer. Welcome, Ernie. It's good to be here. Glad to talk to you. Well, excellent. How would you classify this book? Is this adventure fantasy, or how would you describe it? I'd say it was adventure fantasy, um, with a little bit of science fiction thrown in at a later date. Okay. And you uh, grew up, your background, you grew up in Stockton-on-the-Tees, is that correct, in the northeast of England? Northeast of England, yeah. Yes, sir. And where are you currently? I'm currently in Kentucky with my wife. All right. And I understand you also do some work and consulting work overseas. Yes, I work in Africa for Wally Parsons. All right. So you're... Yes, go ahead. In Luanda, and I'm heading back there in a few days. I work rotationally, so I see a lot of the world, do a lot of traveling. A lot of traveling. It apparently, from also reading a little bit about your background, you have, have had an interest in, is it correct, in comic books for all of your oh, life? Oh, yes, from a very early age. That's very interesting. So do you still enjoy reading a good comic book now and again? Yeah, I used to have a comic collection, which I eventually sold for about... Uh, I would say about $25,000. Amazing, amazing. They they just took up entire space in my loft, in my garage. That is... Actually, we needed uh, an extension on the house for the wife was expecting, my first wife. And I just sold them. And I've tried to keep up with them since. Not to the same extent as I used to, but I still have an interest in them. Was there anything in that collection that you wish you still had? Oh, yes. We're talking <laughs> first editions, number ones of everything oh, Marvel ever published. That that would be incredible to have that kind mm-hmm. of collection. Well, it did benefit you, though, and so it sounds like it was a positive, positive collection to have. Oh, it certainly had a, a positive effect on my imagination. Wonderful. Well, Comics, I read hardbacks, uh, lots about Greek and Roman mythology. And I've always been interested in the aspects of history and how people see history. I personally see it as a form of Chinese whispers. Okay. Stories that we get told through the ages which can change depending on who's telling the story and how many times it gets repeated. Yes. So I look at what we know of history today and I think back, how did it actually start? How could it have started? And most of my book, sorry, books, there's now five been published altogether. They all stem from this basic premise the basic premise of the fact that uh, we don't really may understand not be history. What you understand it to be. Yes, yes, you sure. Can, there's different interpretations on it. 
which I've done. Well, your book deals with, I believe, Druids, Angels, uh, Romans, Lucifer, Gabriel. There's a lot of interesting characters that are outlined in your book. a lot of biblical references, yes. Religion's got a lot to do with the, the stories. So how did you come to write this book? I understand it's been in the process for over 30 years, according to your book cover. Yeah, I used to write short stories, and I had the idea of a short story called The Immortals, all about a man who had lived since the dawn of time and was hunted by various people for the secrets of his immortality. That's all down to the, the blood in his veins. It's a special blood, yes. which I won't say too much about at this time. But lots of people knew his guts, and they wanted it for themselves for various reasons. Now, has, has this been published, or is this a short story that uh, you've kept yourself? I never actually wrote the short story, but the idea stayed in my head. And by the time 1997 came around, I was looking for something to occupy my time, and I thought, I'll start writing again. And then I found this idea was still there, and it refreshed itself out in my head. And as I say, I've taken that into five books that have been published up to now. That's amazing. There's only the first. That's amazing. Uh, what do you want to, to uh, impress upon readers when they when they read this book? What is the focus? Is this entertainment? Is it thought-provoking? Is it uh, scary? Is it fantasy only? How do you look at this book? For all of those, I'd like people to get involved in the story. I hope I've learned to tell a good story after all these years. And also to think about what they know of their own histories. How much do we know about what we're told? Can we believe is there other explanations for various things? And your main characters, their names are, is that Lucifer and Gabriel? In the first book are the two angels, Gabriel and Lucifer. It mentions that they were confined to the earth and uh, lost their wings. Is that kind of the way the story begins? Mm-hmm. The, the story begins in the Middle East, as the stories of angels generally do. And as the Roman Empire sort of rose, these angels and the other angels sort of migrated to try and escape the the rise of this empire because humans were starting to persecute them. And then once they got to Rome and Britain, the two angels, Gabriel and Lucifer, were captured by Celts. Again, some of the Druids knew about the, the powers of the blood in their veins and they decided they were going to keep them for themselves. And they cut the wings off so they couldn't escape and Eventually, they have to start learning to live as humans in a human world, but still with the immortality. And the story comes to a head in wartime Rome, and then modern-day England as it progresses. So it comes to the present day as well. Mm-hmm. I understand, I did read some portions of it that kind of put the setting maybe in Rome itself in present day. Uh, Is that well, correct? Well, of it are in modern-day Rome, but the actual story culminates in modern-day England. Modern-day England, okay. And did I understand also that there's reference to vampires? Is that something that you deal with also? In the first book, there's a reference to what I've named the Council of Vampires, which is a ruling council who have long lives, not like true vampires. Okay. But they live a long time because they've ingested this angel blood. And the angel blood... If it's ingested by a normal human, it can prolong their lifespan. It doesn't give them immortality, but it makes them live longer. And that's why these particular people are hunting the two angels. All right, and how many books are similar to this, or are there any? 
do you think? Well, the first three books, uh, Women of Prayer, Belladonna, and Dealing with the Devil, form a trilogy of sorts. And then book four is A Long Way to Die, and book five, the latest one, is Past and Future Sins. I'm currently writing a sixth at the moment called Frozen Roots. Well, that's amazing. It sounds like you have a lot of imagination that you're, you're uh, when writing. When I said the story fleshed itself out, it turned into a long story. And I've got about 14 books planned. That is incredible. Before I finish telling the story. And how long does it take you to write to pen a book? This one, it A Wing and a Prayer, for example. on my social life and my work. Uh, I would say average about a year and a half per book. Well, what sets us apart from the crowd, do you think, the other books that are out there? Um, basically, the the idea that history might not be what you understand it to be. And if you can look at something, well, say, look around the world at the different cultures. They all have similar tales of fantastic creatures, uh, vampires, werewolves. All these countries are separated by land masses and oceans, yet they have similar legends. Mm -hmm. So where did the legends come from, and how did they all have similar ones? These legends, you can't find them these days. They're not there anymore. So where did they all go? Did they all disappear at the same time? I've, I put a storyline together which I think is plausible explanation for where the magic came from and where it's gone back to. So you feel like there's there's actually maybe some factual history behind uh, some of the content of your uh, book? There may be. There may be. <laughs> the vampires, for instance, I think every culture, every civilization has its own legends on vampires. Interesting. And what was the most challenging part of writing your books? Um, basically getting it going and getting into a, a way of telling the tale. Now, do you write these out longhand, or are they computer-generated? I generally write them out with the aid of a computer. I have a handwritten book at home where I write down each particular book and what's going to happen in it. And I use that as the basis for actually typing it out on the word processor. And I don't tend to write it out in a structured manner, you know, chapter 1, 2, 3, etc. I yes. write various bits of the books. It's like building a, your own jigsaw. You, first of all, what's the picture going to look like? The overall picture. Then how big is it going to be? How detailed? And then you've got to start working away at the individual pieces, making sure they all fit together. And that's how I put my books together, generally. That's an interesting process. Now, you did say... Also, just to recap what you have commented about history, we have fossils to prove the existence of dinosaurs, but legends and tales from many diverse cultures talk of other strange creatures. And even the Bible talks of angels and demons. And we have no proof, but we have belief aplenty on certain aspects. And we'll one day find proof of these other creatures or legends. That's, a, that's an interesting concept. They're still finding new fossils today to prove other dinosaurs existed, so... Who knows? Is it something you can definitely say no to, or is it a definite maybe? Well, definite maybe certainly is something we can uh, all deal with. Yeah, I, I don't like taking other people's scientific explanations as fact. I like to see the evidence behind them, where it's possible. This book, you say, is part of a trilogy. And well, the first book talks about the origins of the angels and how 
the story progresses into modern day. And wartime Rome, more characters get added, and they all come together in modern day England. And each book since has, advert- sorry, has introduced new characters as background for the core characters. And I look at today's political makeup of Europe and how various things are going on there and how that interacts with what's going on around the world. Because the character of Gabriel is not someone who's tied to any particular country. He has bases. And he spends most of his time in Argentina in modern times because people are looking for him around Europe. And that's his hideout. And he has various people he needs to deal with which draw him out of that hideout, if you like. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of the first book is a culmination of a plot to draw him out so that these people can get their hands on him. Now, does he take on contemporary visual form, or is he uh, uh, kind of a chameleon? a normal guy without the wings. Hmm. Apart from the fact that his bone structure is more like a bird's than a human's. His bones are hollow, uh, very strong, muscular, and his average height, average looks, apart from that. Does he have a profession, you know, a career that would camouflage him with society? He's he's done various things over the years. Uh, in the main, invest his money, which you can imagine if he can invest money for that many years, he's going to make a lot of money. Right. So he's, he's virtually a millionaire. Uh, gives a lot to charity, obviously. Uh, funds various research facilities in South America. People that actually know his physiology and his history. He has like a private clinic, which he goes to for various medical reasons. And he also is a time-served engineer, so he makes his own little inventions, which help him in his uh, his various adventures. Well, it sounds like a well-rounded-out character, a guy that can do a little bit of everything. This guy has been looking to improve himself through the centuries, and... Um, Part of the time he spent in Italy in Renaissance times, he hired himself out as a mercenary. You find out more about that in book two. And in later years, he served time as a, a mountaineering instructor with the SAS because he's always been a good climber and he was sort of hiding among the humans, if you like. Yes. Well, it sounds like a, a marvelous adventure. You certainly have an imagination, I can say that about Journey. Well, everyone that's read the book so far has enjoyed them. Super. Well, we've been visiting with Ernest Oglesby, author of A Wing and a Prayer. Uh, Ernie, I appreciate your taking time to visit with us today. Where can we get your books? Uh, well, my publisher's called Our Universe, and if you want to order them from Amazon or Waterstones, they're all available as physical books, hardbacks, paperbacks, or e-books. Fabulous. This book. All and, the information's there. And your your personal website is what? It's an iUniverse. Go iUniverse and put my name in the search field. You'll get to it. Fabulous. Well, I appreciate your visiting with us today. Again, we've been discussing the book, A Wing and a Prayer, the first book of Gabriel. Uh, and thank you for sharing this introduction to what promises to be an intriguing read. Now, for iUniverse Publications, this is J. Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! 
Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings, this is Jay Douglas Barker, and today on iUniverse, we'll be visiting with author Robert I. Mann to discuss his book, The Measure of a Leader. Now, welcome, Bob. Thank you very much, Jay. Well, it's nice to visit with you. You're in my home country of Canada. I'm transplanted to the Southwest and uh, delighted to visit with you. In fact, I believe you're about 60 miles from the town I grew up in, Sarnia, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And I had relatives in Sarnia, so wonderful. I know it well. Wonderful. Well, this sounds like a daunting read. It's 469 pages of, I'm sure, incredible information. How is it that you came to write this book? What was your motivation? Well, uh, I had a, I developed early on in my, my career a passion for understanding the basics of leadership. And I pursued that matter because uh, I, was in, I was required by the Ministry of Education uh, at one time, they, t- they took me aboard to, uh, to be the chairman of a committee of, of educators to figure out how they should train people to become principals and, of, of the schools. Yes. And uh, we developed what we called principals courses for the schools. And in the course of doing that, I, it was very obvious that we had to do some leadership training. And I said to my, uh, to my colleagues at that time, well, we better find out what it is we've got to train them to do to be leaders. Yes. And so we all started to get, get into research on that. Well, that happened way back in about 1970, and uh, we got into that, but that was the start of it all. That, that got me in, involved in the whole question of leadership and, uh, and measuring the leadership 
I got into the whole question of trying to measure the leadership because we were trying to figure out what sorts of things that we should teach people to be leaders and whether we could we could measure it or not to see if it was the right thing to do to be, to become a leader and uh, that got me involved I I pursued that research over the course of uh the uh, Twenty some odd years that, that I was still in education, and and started to get into the whole question of the evaluation of of leaders in their in the process. Well, having done all that, when I retired from that business and went into a consulting firm, I started putting a lot of this stuff down on paper that I'd learned, and before I knew it, I was writing papers. Uh, for people to un- for them to understand as well, and I said, "Hey, wait a minute! I should complete a book on this thing." Oh, great and idea! That's what I did, and it's 469 pages. And how long? How, this is a process, I guess, from 1970 till current present day, uh, in accumulating all of these great ideas and and uh, techniques. Is that correct? Yeah, and accumulating all the ideas and the uh, the, the experimentation that was done in that, in that period, that led to the writing of the book. The book didn't get started as a book until well on into the 1990s. And how long did it take you to complete the 469 pages? Uh, well, actually... Uh, <laughs> To do that, uh, it it was a, a section here and a section there uh, that I did, and then I ended up uh, completing the thing and uh, doing some of the research that I did, the experimentation, as late as uh, uh, 2009. Interesting. Well, the measure of a leader, or uh, the measure of a leader book, uh, it not just directed towards education. I'm assuming. No, it's not. It was directed toward all kinds of leadership. Uh, and if you look at the last few chapters uh, of the book, you'll realize that I give case studies of uh, people. Well, uh, I did a, for instance, in the book, I record a person who was the general manager of a, a, a conservation authority okay. in, in Ontario. And uh, I did an evaluation of his leadership. And uh, then I did an evaluation of the leadership of a a general manager of a a premier fitness club. I see. As well. Was this part of your consulting work? We were going everywhere and anywhere. This was part of your consulting work, was it, as well? Yes, it was part of my consulting work. I I see. I was at that time. And wherever I did consulting work, I would say, let me do a, a leadership appraisal here, because that tells me a tremendous amount more than anything else in, in coming in, trying to uh, uh, tell you how to organize your, your place for the greatest efficiency. Well, if I were a businessman selling widgets uh, down on the corner of uh, Dundas Street in London, Ontario, how would you introduce me to your book? Well, I would uh, introduce you to my book by showing him something of what I did in uh, appraising his leadership. 
if I did that. Uh, now, of course, he might not be interested in doing that because he says, why, why do I need to worry about leadership? I don't have anybody to lead. There's just me here. Yes. And I say, well, someday you may want to be uh, the leader of a large organization. Maybe your business will expand to the point where you will have 100 employees working with you on these widgets that you're you're selling on the corner now that you may be selling through one of the department stores pretty soon. And you will want to know what you should do to make that uh, a more effective place. And this book will tell you that do, if you read it thoroughly. Do you have a, a, a key ingredient or first step that you would recommend to someone in business? Uh, yes, I, I would recommend to them that they make an assessment of uh, the, the people they have working with them, uh, what their level of personal needs are in, the, in terms of the, what they need uh, to be in the, in the sense of producing in the organization. Why are they doing it? What needs are they trying to satisfy? Why are they uh, able to uh, do as well as they do or as poorly as they do? And what is it that is governing them? Learn about those things with the people you're working with uh, because the, the effectiveness of your, your leadership will depend to a very large degree on factors of the social climate of the people you're working with. Absolutely. That's great wisdom. That's an interesting part of the, uh, of the last section of the book where, where we talk about how we appraise a leader. When the appraisal of a leader, the subordinates actually fill out a questionnaire and they tell how often they see this leader doing various and sundry uh, things and, and behaving in certain manners. Now, uh, how do we measure that and how do we compare it? The interesting part was the earliest people that did that sort of thing was in Ohio State University, Bureau of Business Research. They did it with a questionnaire they called the LBDQ, a Leadership Behavior Description Questionnaire, which, with which I worked for many years. And we later modified the thing and made it, made it work more readily. But when they rated their leader, they did it not only in terms of how he actually behaved, but how he should behave, the ideal measure, in other words, uh, how he should behave in order to get their full commitment and, and uh, their, their best performance. That's a powerful approach. And uh, later in the, in the process of the thing, the Ohio State people talked about making these measurements in terms of what's an average for a, a number of people in this kind of leadership position. Uh, we found out that that, that gave us a, a, a norm that varied every time you did a different group of people. And besides, it made it difficult because you always had to do a, a number of leaders in the same position uh, across the board, as it were, and they did it with school superintendents, and they did it with aircraft commanders in the Korean War. Uh, but what we found out in the long haul was it wasn't that average made the difference between a high or low effectiveness 
in that group. What was really the issue was how well their behavior was compared to the ideal that the subordinates set for them. Mm-hmm. Then you didn't have to worry about a group of leaders. You had the mirror right there for this one. Now, if you're describing a leader, the ideal leader, how would you describe them if I were to meet them on the street? Well, now, that's a difficult one. Yes. Because you, you wouldn't know for sure meeting him on the street whether he was a good leader or not. In business, what are the qualities that stand out to you? And, and there, there's another thing that uh, we have a, a very strong issue with. Um, there's a whole chapter in, in the book about what we call the trait approach. So what personality traits would you expect to see? And after we get through with uh, 35 pages of working with the trait approach, find out that it doesn't work. Is that right? It doesn't work because what you might obs- what you think you observe in the person is so strongly influenced by your own, and this, this goes back to your original question. Your original question, what would I expect to see if I walked into a business and uh, looked as a leader? What would, I, what would I see? What I might see is something that I had predetermined in my own mind. Nice. Hmm. And that's the problem. What characteristics we might see is not the uh, part that makes them a leader anyway, unless uh, we are able to identify traits in some kind of an absolute sense. And we can't do that, because the way we ascribe traits to people is by inference from the way we see them behave. Are you a fan of the uh, personality trait tests that are out there? Uh, I'm not a big fan of that because the the uh, pr- the problem there is that it, when you get all all said and done with the whole question of traits, what you re- end up finding out is that the, the, these are abstractions that we draw from the way we see people behave. Our approach in this book is to to, to say to people, don't try to guess at what they, what they are like in their personality. Observe how they behave in the setting of the, of the principle of the, uh, of the leader. And from that obser- observation of how they behave as a leader, you will learn more about them than any, uh, any attempt at ascribing some kind of personality trait to them. That sounds phenomenal. Sounds like you've done a lot of uh, deep research into putting this project together. An awful lot of deep research on that question. <laughs> and uh, we uh, looked at the, uh, at the theories that are presented by a number of authors about uh, what it takes to be a good leader and an effective person and all that sort of thing. And when, you, when all is said and done... Uh, what you find out that you're talking about is what this person accomplishes by the way he acts. I see. And, and that, that takes you back and you say, well, it wasn't a personality trait per se that was responsible for this. It was his action. Now, you will say, well, why make that distinction, Bob? Well, I make that distinction because there are numerous cases 
where people have come along and by their actions have convinced others that they are very honest and good guys and all the rest of it, and it takes you several weeks to realize you've been conned. I've experienced that myself, unfortunately. And and all of a sudden you say, holy smokes, I thought this guy was a very honest and nice guy. What I find out is he was just acting that way to get me to contribute the money I gave him, and then he took off. Uh, that does happen. Certainly does. So, so you have to be very careful about ascribing traits from uh, observing people. A question about the style of your book. Is it something mm-hmm. that would be easy for the novice to read and understand, or is it a little more in the line of a research paper? Well, in some sections it's a little bit like a research paper, but I have, uh, have in, the, in the writing of it kept in mind uh, how to keep the average person on tap and, and explaining things in common terms. Excellent. Very important in a work this large. And we deal with some very highly uh, uh, abstract ideas, but we turn them by example into uh, easily understood examples. Exceptional. Well, we've been visiting with Robert I. Mann author of The Measure of a Leader. Mr. Mann, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Oh, I'm very happy to be able to do it. And how can we get a, get a copy of your book? You can get a copy of my book by uh, going to the uh, go to Indigo Books computer on the Internet. Go yeah. to Indigo Books, and when you get there and you've got a space to fill in, uh, fill in the title of the book, The Measure of a Leader. Very good. And... It'll tell you uh, how to get it and all the rest of it. And they can also search online uh, using your name as a reference point, Robert, initial I, middle initial, and last name M-A-N-N. That's correct. Excellent. The, with iUniverse, if they go on there in iUniverse, you can get an e-book from them as well. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your insight. I, I've enjoyed visiting with you. Thank you very much, Jake. We do have, be, have the opportunity to talk to you. And for iUniverse Publications, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.